Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, we'll explore the link between aspirations and poverty. What are aspirations? How important are they in reducing poverty? And do efforts that try to promote aspirations help individuals to do better in life, or does it create false expectations for the future? I am joined by two scholars who have done a lot of work in this area, especially in lower middle income countries. Katrina Kosek is a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute in the US. Her research focuses on linkages between economic shocks, gender and governance in a range of different countries, including Kyrgyzstan and Pakistan. Cecilia Moe is an associate professor of political science at the University of Berkeley. She studies political behavior, human trafficking and the effects of inequality with research in India, Pakistan and the United States. Both of them have considered the role of aspirations in people's lives, including how lack of aspirations can hold people back and how fostering aspirations can inspire people to live better lives. At the same time, they also warn against a narrow focus on aspirations as a solution to resolving poverty, as it is certainly no panacea, and also it can risk blaming disadvantaged individuals for the situation they're in. Katrina and Cecilia, thank you very much for joining today to talk about aspirations on our podcast. And you've both done lots of research on this topic, and I'm very curious to hear your insights on the link between aspirations and poverty and why it's important to strengthen aspirations. But maybe to start the conversation, we can ask you what aspirations actually are. Thank you so much. Basically, we should be thinking of aspirations as preferences or goals for an individual's future. And this is, of course, distinct from where an individual currently stands. And it's also distinct from their expectations about the future. Now, aspirations are are largely socially determined. We have certain individuals and certain pieces of information that are in our, what, what Jenna Cotton Ray referred to as our cognitive window. And it's basically those people and those experiences that are at our fingertips. And individuals can have aspirations in a variety of different domains. And common ones are looking at income aspirations or wealth aspirations. We can look at aspirations for the education of one's children, say, how many years of education do you want them to obtain? And we can have social status aspirations. How high do you want to, um, of a position do you want to achieve in your community? Or you can even have security aspirations and how, how, how secure uh, do you want your family to be? Aspirations are then the goals that individuals set for themselves in each of these domains. So you can consider someone living in poverty in a low-income country, and, and what level of household income do they indicate that they would ultimately like to obtain? How many years of education do they want their children to ultimately obtain? Um, and these are going to be their aspirations in those domains. Individuals with high aspirations, we should think of them as holding beliefs and preferences that are kind of minimizing those restrictive features of their environment and really focusing on possibilities and sort of keeping their eyes on the prize, so to speak, about what they would like to obtain. And in a study from rural Pakistan, 
uh, we found that there's a number of different cognitive processes that are really correlated with having high aspirations. Um, and among those, individuals that um, have what we call a strongly internal locus of control, which is, is, a, is a way of saying that individuals that feel confident that they can achieve their goals through hard work, those are individuals with high aspirations. And perhaps as a result of this, we also see that high aspiring individuals do not feel like poverty is due to external factors. They feel like their, their poverty and their status is within their control. Thank you, Katrina. Then Cecilia, could you speak to why having aspirations are so important? Thank you so much, Katie. Um, as Katrina noted, there has been a growing body of research that's really shown the importance of high aspirations for what we can refer to as forward-looking behaviors. And I'll try to unpack what that means a little bit here. So if we think that high aspirations lead to forward-looking behavior, you can think that low aspirations then translate to certain kinds of outcomes. And we've now seen some work that has shown that low aspirations um, can be a possible explanation for the difficulty of escaping poverty. So if those living in poverty do not see a tomorrow in which their well-being can feasibly be much better than what it is today, it's not unnatural to think that they may not then take actions to really improve it. And then consequently, they'll be more likely to be stuck in a cycle of poverty. So we saw evidence of this in a study that Katrina and I conducted in rural Pakistan. We found that individuals with higher aspirations are more likely to save at higher rates. They're more likely to diversify one's income sources. So there's greater ability to sort of smooth um, their income when there are these exogenous interruptions like floods or monsoons or earthquakes. Um, and they're also more likely to spend uh, money on important agricultural inputs like seeds and fertilizers that we know lead to more intensive and productive use of land. So we've seen evidence that um, when there are higher aspirations, there are just more desirable kinds of behaviors that lead to greater economic well-being. In addition to encouraging future-oriented economic behavior, we've also seen that higher aspirations can encourage future-oriented political behaviors. So in other words, those with high levels of aspirations are more likely to be politically active in ways that uh, society would like to see. So we know from past work that political engagement is evidence of a high sense of self-efficacy to bring about change in the future. And a person will not participate in political actions if there is no sense that this behavior can then impact future outcomes. So we saw this connection again with our study of uh, households in rural Pakistan. Uh, that aspirations and political engagement are actually linked. Uh, we saw that our families that demonstrated higher levels of aspirations um, also were more likely to vote in elections. They're more likely to be members of a political or civic organization. And they're also actually able to answer questions around politics um, more accurately. They're more likely to recognize who their political leaders were, who they should go to if they had issues um, in their community. Um, so it's interesting to see that high aspirations are linked with a lot of uh, desirable outcomes, not just from trying to increase uh, one's income and be less likely to be in poverty, but also just in engaging um, politically, uh, which is something that we, you know, when we're thinking about what is good for the health of democracies, 
we want to see more people vote. We want to see more people engaged. And it looks like having um, having citizens that demonstrate higher levels of aspirations is one uh, one mechanism by which to get higher levels of engagement. Very interesting. So quite a lot that is linked to higher aspirations in terms of desirable outcomes, economically, politically, really powerful in terms of what they can do. And so my next question then would be, why is it that not everybody has high aspirations? Why are the groups within society that hold lower expectations or aspirations? So aspirations are affected by the individuals and the information in one's cognitive window. So if one is not exposed to individuals and and information that makes them aware of life possibilities and, and ambitious about obtaining them, then they may have low aspirations. But poverty and economic vulnerability themselves can also affect aspirations. Huma Khan and I, um, in a 2016 book chapter we wrote on rural Pakistan, we show that similar individuals living in communities with worse infrastructure or in villages that don't have community meetings to discuss issues and events can have lower aspirations. So we have at least some indication that better infrastructure and having opportunities for citizen engagement can contribute to higher aspirations. And Cecilia and I also have a paper from 2017 from rural Pakistan showing that negative economic shocks on a household can lower aspirations. And in particular, we show that exposure to Pakistan's devastating 2010 floods, these floods effectively put one fifth of the country underwater they massively lowered aspirations a year and a half later. And on top of that, the effects were largest precisely for the poorest individuals. So we know that not only are the shocks that are ubiquitous in developing countries very capable of lowering aspirations, but that the poor are most vulnerable to having their aspirations lowered in this way. So so why does it really matter that sort of this Uh, convalescence of particular infrastructure, institutions, or shocks could could lower aspirations? And and why might low aspirations be dangerous? Well, Well, the main reason is that low aspirations can possibly lead to what has been called a behavioral poverty trap. And this means being trapped in poverty, as it sounds, based on the behaviors you exhibit. This is sort of a pathological conservatism, which means that individuals will will forego even small and feasible investments that have potentially large benefits because they're either overly risk averse or just otherwise afraid of, of going after what many other individuals with higher aspirations would like to obtain. So they're not making what we would call no brainer investments in reducing their poverty. And low aspirations can also be dangerous because they have the potential to waste critical development spending or or to result in misguided policies to reduce poverty. And what I mean by that is that we have so many different types of interventions directly targeting poverty. We have cash transfers, we have asset transfers, we have uh, programs for promoting education, Um, we try to encourage different livelihood opportunities, providing microfinance to, to poor individuals to start businesses. 
And if we target these types of programs at individuals without simultaneously taking into account the aspirations of those individuals and their goals of, for their futures, then we can result in spending a lot of money on opportunities that individuals do not take advantage of. And we can fail to reduce poverty in the way we would like to with those interventions precisely because of these aspiration failures. Thank you, Katrina. Maybe following on from that in terms of what causes aspirations to be lower than we would want them to be. Um, and you spoke about shocks, you spoke about what you see around you, other people and what they have achieved and also high levels of poverty. I'm wondering what the role of inequality is in, in this sort of equation, if you will, of higher aspirations. Thank you so much for that question. So first, let's talk about how inequality might affect one's just simple aspiration levels. So when you look at uh, a rich, this is a rich literature, it's over six decades old. Sociologists have really talked about how social structure can have influence over people by affecting their reference groups, which will define as individuals in a person's social environment um, that impact how they see the world, right? People don't live in a vacuum. They don't live in this quite little bubble. They look around themselves to see how life is supposed to be. Like they're getting information from those around them to think about, well, what are the right income levels? What are the right behaviors? Uh, what are kind of the, the right way to go about one's lives? And so when we're thinking about aspiration levels, people are getting information from their neighbors, from their family members, from those in their community, from those they see in media, from those they see in social media, in thinking about aspiration levels, like we do want to just think about who are all the people that people can look at to sort of get information about what is normal, what is their sense of possibility. And so when we're thinking about then the effects of inequality, if you start seeing lots of images of individuals that are really advancing, right? So maybe in the past, um, maybe when there wasn't television, when there wasn't social media, maybe when there wasn't radio, you might just be looking at those that are immediately next to you. And that's a reference group. And that's who you get information about in terms of how one should uh, be living and what one should aspire to. Now you start introducing media content, social media, you start seeing very different ways in which people might live. And that's going to alter one sense of what one should have. And maybe sometimes you might start, like you might see a program and say like, well, that's, that's just completely irrelevant to me. Like those, those people are living in a completely different world. And so that might not impact one's uh, immediate goals or aspirations. But then there's other sets of images of people that might not be directly next to you that you might still look at and say, hmm, I want what they have. That life is something that I want to have. And those images, those words, those are then going to affect how one thinks about what one should have. Inequality then means you start seeing starker differences between what one has, what maybe their neighbors have versus what others have. And you might start thinking, well, why can't we have what these other communities have, what these other individuals have? And that's going to affect one's aspirations. You could think, okay, like in certain communities, like just having a car, like
that's that's what one strives to have. And you can be really happy if you just have a physical car. Now then you go to another community where everyone has cars, but some people now start having really fancy cars. Then your aspirations start shifting because then you start seeing that others have something that's more desirable than you. Um, so this the sense of what an aspiration is, it's not static. It is dynamic. It changes. It's affected by those you compare yourself to. And that might differ from person to person in terms of who one is sort of comparing themselves to. Um, but inequality has a large impact in that it starts creating these stark differences and it then creates this concept of an aspiration gap, right? It might mean that now then you start seeing these bigger differences between what you have and what you think you should have and while we talked earlier about how aspirations can lead to a lot of positive outcomes, and it's really problematic if your aspiration levels are too low, if there are these large aspiration gaps, right, that is often something that comes with higher levels of inequality, you might start seeing sort of the negative side of aspirations, right? Um, if you then find yourself wanting something that's really too high and really difficult to get, then you might start seeing people expressing a lot more discontent. And we saw, we see this in the political world where when there's high levels of inequality, we can also empirically observe larger aspiration gaps. Um, so even if families are actually doing better, right? Like you can see their incomes getting better, but if their aspirations are getting higher at a faster level, right, at a faster rate, then this aspiration gap is growing as inequality grows. And then that leads to greater discontent. Um, and at least in some country contexts that we saw like in China and in Pakistan, we've seen greater levels of political discontent, higher levels of political disaffection, and maybe an increased um, level of protest behavior right? And so this puzzle of what that sometimes you see, hmm, a country is getting economically better off, and yet people are more dissatisfied. Why is that happening? And one of the stories that really help clarify that is when inequality levels are high, you're also seeing aspiration gaps growing, and that gap can then translate to greater discontent and political disaffection. Fascinating. So it's almost like there's a sweet spot. You want aspirations for many in society to be higher than they currently are. So they have more forward looking behavior, but the gap not too large, because then what they would like to achieve is out of reach and it will lead to discontent, as, as you mentioned. I guess the next question is, well, what can be done to raise aspirations towards improving people's lives in a, in a productive way that doesn't make the gap too large? Well, the good thing is we know that policymakers and development practitioners can raise aspirations and they can do so in ways that do not seem to leave people with a huge gap between what they currently have and what they want to obtain, which can sort of lead to this disgruntlement. So I really get passionate about this because there's just this continually emerging scholarship on all of these promising ways in which practitioners um, and, and donors and governments can raise aspirations. 
a number of development interventions I, I'd like to kind of point out just to give a sense of the flavor of them. There's a number of studies that show that exposing individuals to role models can raise aspirations. And often poor individuals precisely lack successful role models. And when individuals can see that a greater and a better future than what they currently have is possible, it's obtainable, and not only is it obtainable by some people, but by people who look like them, then that can really create the seeds of having higher aspirations and trying to uh, attain those goals. Rob Jensen shows that introducing well-paid job opportunities and information about labor market opportunities can raise aspirations. So in some sense, we see an information gap where individuals are not aware of the types of opportunities or can't access them, so they don't aspire to attain them. But when individuals know what are the possible labor force uh, opportunities that would involve higher incomes than they currently have, then this information can be brought into their cognitive window and used to try to invest in a better future. Cecilia and I uh, have shown in the paper we mentioned earlier about the negative impacts of floods on aspirations in Pakistan that government social protection can actually potentially fully eliminate the negative effects of economic shocks on the poor. So we found in communities that were sort of just below a cutoff for getting social protection disaster relief following the floods um, versus that were just above the cutoff and did get the social protection, all of the declines and aspirations from the floods occurred in communities that did not receive social protection. And in those that did receive the social protection, we did not see any decline at all in aspirations, in fact. So this shows that targeted government relief efforts are capable of preventing these sort of long-term declines in, in aspirations. So there are all of these, these formal investments in, in asset transfers, cash transfers, or simply trying to nudge individuals to interact with one another, to learn about possibilities, that those things can, can raise aspirations. So amid all of these promising interventions, what is key for policymakers and development practitioners is to identify the right groups with overly low aspirations and target them with interventions that, given where their current standing is, are likely to increase aspirations in, in particular domains. Thank you, Katrina. And if, if I can follow up on that, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about the interaction between having too little income or lack of economic resources or just being poor and how that leads to low aspirations and all these more behavioral type interventions, like you said, sort of nudge type um, interventions that try to raise aspirations without that coming with economic support. Because one could argue it's a bit of a circular issue. You are in poverty and therefore you have low aspirations and because you have low aspirations you stay stuck in poverty um, and so one set of interventions might directly target people's behavior and try to raise aspirations but you might equally argue that just by raising people's incomes through cash transfers for example um, that in itself might put in place a virtuous cycle so do you think these things should go hand in hand would you place more weight on the cash transfers or maybe the behavioral interventions. I'm curious to hear both your thoughts on this. 
I think that it is absolutely critical for us to take into account that there are many complementary interventions. And to me, the greatest promise is to twin something like cash transfers with this type of sort of behavior change communication and information that can help individuals use cash or asset transfers uh, to build a better future. Uh, while I think that having cash alone, uh, if individuals have sufficiently as high aspirations, can result in effective investments. Often cash can be put into myriad uses and sometimes might not be used for the types of investments such as building new businesses or sort of higher risk activities um, as opposed to simply increasing consumption or um, or buying uh, non-productive assets. So I think that having the, the two together is probably the most uh, promising type of intervention. But I, I don't want to oversimplify because I do believe that there are cases in which income is the binding constraint and others in which it is mainly your cognitive window and the set of possibilities available to you that's the binding constraint. But I think among the poor, it's quite common that both of those are really critical constraints and sort of effectively pairing the, the capital necessary in addition to the motivation and the plan for how to move forward through an aspirations targeting intervention is a very promising combination. I think one thing that I do want to highlight is I think sometimes, you know, this line of work that's really focused on aspiration, it runs the risk of making it appear as though the focus should really just be on the individual and that it's really about them having higher levels of aspirations. And it's problematic to think in that way that it's really about individual choices and just their behaviors. As, as you say, there are times in which if you don't have the resources, if you don't have some of the structural support to really be able to make behavior changes, then it's really not enough to just have individuals want more. You have to ensure that that want is coupled with the means to actually make modifications. Who cares if you want to invest in more seeds if you actually don't have the money to invest in those seeds? So it's not enough to simply focus on the individual and think that if they're in poverty, that's really about something that is deficient in them, that it's that, that they're not wanting enough. Certainly there are problems if people are not thinking that they can modify their future. And that translates to behaviors that are going to kind of compromise their ability to have a better future. But if you don't actually provide families with the means to actually make behavior changes, then just these investments that are really about nudging and, and having people want to aspire for more, that doesn't necessarily translate to good outcomes. And that takes me to that aspirations is a double-edged sword in that if you have high aspirations, that can lead to a lot of future-oriented behavior. But if you then don't have the kind of support to be able to help individuals kind of translate the higher levels of aspirations to like safe behaviors, um, it can lead to negative outcomes in that 
part of the reason why you are seeing higher aspirations translate to kind of better outcomes is that people are willing to take some risks, right? They're willing to say the status quo is not good enough and I'm going to take some actions to try to change that status quo. So that means that there's a higher level of risk tolerance that people then have when they have higher levels of aspiration. Now you can think higher levels of risk tolerance can be good if they're thinking, okay, I'm going to try that new fertilizer to see if that might translate to a better harvest. But higher levels of risk might also mean higher levels of like risk tolerance might mean you might gamble more. You might be more willing to say, participate in these like lotteries or just go to a casino and gamble more because you want more, right? And you're thinking like, yes, I'm willing to take that bet. Like I understand that it's like one in a hundred, one in a thousand or whatnot, that the odds are not in my favor, but I want so much to have more that I'm willing to take that bet. And so if you're not providing families with some kind of alternative and all you have are these high risk gambles, then just trying to nudge people to have higher levels of aspiration and say like, you should want more, that might actually lead to really negative outcomes. So you definitely want to pair families uh, with interventions that are about wanting more for their future, but also provide them with that support as then the negative side of aspirations, which is this higher level of risk tolerance, which can be good, but it can also be bad. Like you want that bad to be mitigated. Thank you, Cecilia, for for, um, elaborating that and also pointing out the risk of a focus on aspirations or I think really any behavioral elements revolving around poverty, how that can be risky because there is this really individualistic focus that comes with it, uh, which, of course, we should always keep in mind. It's not just down to the individual, but very much a systemic issue. Thank you both very much for your time today and for giving us your insights. It's been really valuable. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram and wherever you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from our listeners. So leave us a review or get in touch via poverty-unpacked.org. We hope you'll join us again next time.